Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. I am so pleased to finally have a sleep expert on the podcast. Given how central sleep is to our athletic recovery, our health, heck, everything in our lives, all older athletes need to be great sleepers. Are you? I am not. Dr. Amy Bender is a true expert who agreed to share her knowledge about what we are doing wrong and how to do sleep right. Unless you are so sleep deprived that you think you are a great sleeper, you have to listen to this episode. I've been sleeping better ever since I spoke to Amy, and now it's your chance to learn what works. Let's talk to Dr. Amy Bender. Welcome, everybody. Today, I am joined by a true expert in sleep, Dr. Amy Bender, who is the Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra. Welcome, Dr. Bender. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yes, I appreciate you taking some time. Please tell us just a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, How do you know so much about sleep? Because that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, I've been in the sleep field for about 15 years now. I started off as a sleep technologist. So I was, I started in a research lab. So it's pretty interesting. We would sleep deprive people for up to 62 hours was oh one experiment that we did. How much did you have to pay them for that? <laughs> a lot of money. <laughs> oh boy. But um, so I, I was the sleep technologist at this research laboratory. So I would train research assistants how to do the hookups, how to put all these electrodes on so that we could measure sleep in the laboratory fully as a part of these experiments. Um, and then really wanted to develop experiments myself. I wanted to answer questions using study design. So I ended up getting my master's and PhD at the same lab in experimental psychology, focusing on sleep EEG, and did a postdoc at University of Calgary after my PhD, working with elite Canadian Olympic athletes nice. and optimizing their sleep. And then currently, I'm the director of clinical sleep science at Cerebra, which is a sleep technology company startup where we're really trying to change the way we diagnose and treat sleep disorders, but also help kind of the everyday person sleep better. Well, I have got the right person. That's awesome. In fact, I'll tell you, I am rather desperately hoping you can shed some light onto the challenges and the solutions for getting enough quality sleep for older athletes. You know, and I guess it falls into a, a set of things like devoting enough time for sleep and being able to fall asleep and being able to stay asleep. I'm sure you've seen it all. Yes, it's it's interestingly, when we're at looking at the elite athlete level, there are a lot of issues with sleep. So we do find we think it might be more than kind of the general population just because there's travel involved potentially. There's different schedules. So a swimmer might have an early morning training schedule. They have pool times available only at certain times. Yeah. You know, triathletes have so much training and they're, you know, might have a family and work. And so it's pretty challenging. So we do, we do see a lot of sleep issues in athletes. Sure. And in my audience here is the older athlete. And I, I'm going to guess that that is a compounding factor I'll bet that older people also as a group have more issues and then the athlete activity on top of which, if only that sleeping is so important to the athlete for recovery purposes. I mean, we, as the older athlete, we recover more slowly than we used to. And sleep is that like most powerful 
tool for recovery that we have. If only we could sleep, right? <laughs> yes, it is. It is challenging because as we age, our sleep declines. You know, it's it's a fact. For example, our deep sleep decreases as we hit forty. Our brain waves they aren't they aren't as uh, deep. They aren't as tall. They aren't. There's not as much deep sleep occurring, and that's that's where growth hormone is being released. Tissues are being repaired. So as we age, we do see a decline in some aspects of sleep quality. Um, and so that's why we really have to pay attention to it. You know, you can't just uh, drink a couple beers right before bedtime as, you know, I was a college athlete and it, it didn't impact you as much as it would when you're an older athlete. So you really have to pay attention to sleep hygiene, to what you can do to optimize your sleep. Yeah. Well, we're definitely going to get into some of that uh, detailed advice. And I understand, let me just head you off because I'm sure you're going to say, well, you know, uh, every person is different. And, and, and if people have issues, they probably need to seek professional help. Uh, but we're just talking about the kind of the general things which we know are true or they really seem to be true. And so maybe we're just not asking you for advice exactly, but just what you know that seems to be generally true and and then people could benefit from that. I'd like to start with this idea that, you know, maybe there are people out there who aren't quite sure that they're not getting enough quality sleep. They're able to compensate in some ways. What are some clues that people might be able to use to, to say, oh, yeah, maybe I'm not getting enough sleep? Symptoms, I guess, maybe is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I would say if you're having to drink five cups of coffee to stay awake, that might be a sign. Um, waking up, you know, having actually having your schedule differ on the weekends. Uh, so let's say you sleep in a lot on the weekend, that's likely a sign that you're not getting enough sleep during the week. So we want to okay. keep our schedule consistent. So the idea of catching up on the weekend is not really a, a good idea. That's more of a sign that you're not getting enough sleep regularly. Absolutely. And I think, you know, probably your audience too might be the opposite. They're actually getting less sleep on the weekend because they have more training load potentially. Um, but if you were to kind of the way that we look at this, it's called social jet lag. So the more that your schedule differs on your free days, the more problems that we see. So the more inconsistent that schedule is, the more problems we see with mental health, metabolism, performance, mood, mood problems. Um, so that is a sign if you are compensating a lot on the weekend versus the weekday, uh, that that could be a sign. I think a good a good sign that you're getting enough sleep as well as good quality would be if you're waking up without an alarm clock. That would be the ultimate goal, which I know is hard to do, but um, that would be kind of the ultimate sign that you are getting enough sleep, which we want to aim for at least seven hours as an adult, seven to nine. And then the quality matters as well. So, you know, you want to be alert during the day. You know, we may see a little dip in alertness in the afternoon. That's completely normal. But you don't want to be having to have 
coffee all afternoon, you don't want to be, you know, dozing off, those would be some signs that maybe you should get it checked out. And what about being able to fall asleep in seconds when you finally turn in? That's that's not a good thing. So ideally, we do want to fall asleep in less than 30 minutes. So that's a good signal of good sleep quality. However, if you're falling asleep in less than five minutes, you are probably sleep deprived. So if okay. it's too quick, you're probably sleep deprived. A normal would be probably, you know, 10 minutes to 30 minutes. Okay, that's good. Good to know. And something I had heard only recently in my advanced age, it's hard to believe that how little I have known. And my guess is that most people just don't know much about sleep. They don't know what is good sleep, how to have good sleep. And so they're just, uh, you know, wandering around in the dark trying to figure it out. And in, and in some cases, they don't even know that they're not getting good sleep, but it's affecting their, you said their metabolism, uh, their hunger, their mood, their ability to recover from exercise, their their uh, ability to form long-term memories. I mean, like your ability to be a good human being depends on your ability to sleep and people don't know anything about it. Well, so you mentioned sleep stages. Can you tell us a little more? So it's more than just getting eight hours. And you said seven, I guess, was like the minimum that you recommend. But I guess somebody could get seven hours of being unconscious and not really be getting good sleep. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. There's three main factors to optimal sleep. Duration is one. So quantity of sleep. So as I mentioned, you want to get at least seven. Uh, there is some variability. So some people may need more, some people may need less. I, I, we should talk about uh, that as well, because there are genetic variations where people think they're a short sleeper, but in reality, they aren't. Right. It's a very, very low likelihood. So Duration of sleep is a key factor. Quality of sleep is a key factor. Uh, so quality of sleep, the general definition, we don't have a good idea of what quality sleep looks like. Honestly, we're, we need work in this area for sure. But a general definition would be falling asleep in less than 30 minutes, waking up no more than one time per night for 20 minutes or less, and then sleeping 85% of, of time in bed. So you don't want to be in bed for 10 hours and sleep for eight hours because then you're awake for long periods of time during the night. Yeah. Now, the cool thing about uh, my company that I'm working at right now is we're actually looking at different ways to measure sleep quality using brainwave activity. Yeah. So currently, the way we look at sleep is through these stages of sleep, which I mentioned earlier, the non-REM, the REM sleep. But it's it's not that fine-grained. It's We're looking at sleep on a 30-second basis. So every 30 seconds, you would score, okay, that's stage three, that's stage one, that looks like REM sleep. But within those stages, there's a lot of variability. So if 50% of the night were in stage two, and there, there's a lot of variability in sleep depth within that stage. So there's a lot more information that we're not capturing. Okay. And I'm really excited about what we're doing at Cerebra is to look at sleep on a three-second level, decompose these brain waves into four different bends, 
look at the power within those uh, brain waves. And uh, we're looking at 10,000 different combinations across the night. Whereas if you were in a normal sleep lab, you know, you'd normally get five different stages of sleep. We're able to look at it on 10,000 uh, very fine grained analysis across the night and be able to capture some of these changes in sleep quality, more finer um, manipulations that might occur. So for example, with noise, using our ORP, this new measure of sleep quality, we're able to detect a change in sleep with a sound of a plane flying overhead that you would never be able to detect on a sleep stage level. So it's very, very detailed. So it's exciting. And I think we're progressing more towards a way to measure sleep quality better. By way of sleep stages? Yeah, by way of uh, even more detailed than sleep stages, by way of this new methodology, odds ratio product or ORP is what we call that. Uh. Um, and then the third factor would be timing of sleep. So a lot of people think that, uh, you know, oh, your best sleep is going to occur before midnight. You know, there's a myth out there saying that you have to get to bed before midnight because that's when you're going to get your deepest states of sleep. And in reality, it depends. If you're a night owl, actually, for you, it'll be better to go to bed later because that's when your melatonin is being released and that's going to lead to potentially better sleep quality. So timing of sleep matters too. And even with shift workers who are sleeping during the day and staying up all night, they're not getting as good a quality sleep as, as if they were sleeping at night. Right. Well, okay. So hopefully that technology will become available to people. And all people have now is how they feel and, and some of these other mood and other things that you had talked about earlier. And they also have these heart rate trackers, you know, the whoop strap and the aura ring. And, and I think that there's plenty of other ones out there as well. Those are the two that I've actually got some uh, firsthand experience with. And they're not EKG. They're not, I mean, sleep stages, I guess, is a brainwave thing. And these devices are not using sleep uh, brainwaves. They're using heart rate and other things to try to guess at that sort of thing. How good a job do you think that they do? I mean, does anybody know how good that they are? Yes, there was a recent study actually looking at seven different sleep trackers. Unfortunately, Whoop and Aura wasn't on that list. Um, it would have been nice to include those. But what we found or what they found is that sleep trackers do a decent job at capturing total sleep time or sleep duration. Uh, they have definitely a harder time calculating out the different sleep stages, which as you mentioned, it is a brainwave activity. That's how we're able to define these sleep stages along with, you know, muscle activity of the chin, eye movements, etc. is how you fully define these sleep stages. And they're kind of using heart rate as a proxy uh, to calculate these. And so they aren't, they are not valid. And the conclusion of this study was that they're good at estimating sleep duration. However, they are not good at estimating sleep stages. Right. And I get a lot of people messaging me, 
oh no, it looks like my my sleep tracker told me I got 10% REM or 10% deep sleep. And if we had hooked that person up in the lab, I'm sure the answer would be completely different. I'm sure they got much more deep sleep or much more REM sleep than what the sleep tracker is saying. So we just have to be aware of the limitations. And personally, so I, I have a Garmin Forerunner mm-hmm. and that Garmin was studied within these seven trackers in the study. And it was actually the worst at looking at sleep. And uh, for me personally, before I even knew the results of the study, I, I do not wear it at night. Like I do, I don't trust it. So you do have to be careful. I think aura and whoop are, are better, you know, Aura is using a lot more different. They're using temperature, they're using light, I believe. They're using accelerometry. So they're collecting more information, so they may be a bit more accurate. Um, but we do have to be careful to not let the data control you, let the feedback control you from what you're seeing with them. So I would, I don't, I don't recommend, I mean, I think my scenario, not wearing it to bed is kind of an extreme scenario, but I think they can be useful in some instances. You just have to evaluate yourself maybe when you wake up. Oh, you know, it seemed like I got a decent, decent sleep. And then factor that in when you're looking at the feedback. So not take the feedback as this is 100% truth as to how I slept last night. Yeah. And I guess that is the challenge because some people love data and the data matters. And these sleep tracking things actually are adding stress, you know, as they lay there not sleeping, they're worried about the sleep tracker recording that they're not sleeping and it's going to go into their results. And so it's adding mm-hmm. stress. It's not helping. It's adding stress. My personal experience is that I always, as I looked at the data, I always thought, you know, this is, this doesn't look right. And it was adding stress to my day, even though it was cool looking at the results, but the data was not right, I didn't think. And so I stopped wearing them altogether. Yes. I'm actually working with an NBA team right now who's who's using Aura. And for them, you know, I wouldn't want them seeing this feedback prior to an important playoff game, for example. Uh, so yeah, you really have to kind of use it in some instances and maybe forego just like what you did it wasn't worth the stress of seeing that feedback. Yeah. Although the one good thing that came of it is that I noticed that when I drank alcohol at night, my sleep results were worse. Now, it's not 100% accurate in terms of the stages, but I, I could tell that it, was, that it was having an effect. And so I stopped drinking alcohol. Uh, as a result, that's got to be a good thing. Oh, absolutely. And especially, you know, you may notice exercise at a certain time even can help your sleep quality. Uh, Even potentially, I know in one person, it was, you know, eating guacamole (laughs) before bedtime wasn't a good idea for them. So having like a fatty kind of meal before bedtime, not that, I mean, it's kind of a snack, but that type of meal before bedtime really impacted their sleep quality. So yeah, I think they can be useful. Uh, We just have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Sure. Well, okay. So let's get into some of the stuff that you know, and that maybe people don't know, and, and we can give it to them. And if it's possible, if you'll let me, I'd like to break it into two buckets. One is, 
what is it that people tend to do thinking that it doesn't matter or thinking even that it might be helping, but it's really hurting their sleep? Things like alcohol. I mean, I know people who have a couple of drinks at night because they think it helps them fall asleep. Yes, that is one for sure that it, and in fact, it does help you fall asleep quicker. So that is true. However, it disturbs your sleep more as it's being metabolized during the night. So in the end, it may help you fall asleep quicker, but it's going to contribute to worse sleep quality or across the, the night as it's being metabolized. Um, there actually has been some research on alcohol reducing melatonin as well, which is kind of interesting, which melatonin in general helps us have better sleep quality during the night. And then also alcohol raises temperature. So when we are falling asleep, our body temperature drops, making it easier to go to sleep. You know, so temp uh, alcohol may be involved in temperature regulation as well. So alcohol is one of them. Caffeine is another one. Um, it really depends on the person, though. There's different people that metabolize caffeine differently. So there's fast metabolizers. There's slow metabolizers. And so it, that one's pretty, well, actually, I was going to say that one's pretty easy to tell. But there was a recent study in teenagers where they gave them an energy drink at dinner time. And the majority of them didn't report this to be a problem. They fell asleep normally. They reported their sleep quality to be the same. However, when they looked at their sleep on a brainwave level, they had about a 20% reduction in stage three, the deepest stage of sleep. So that is one where you may not, you're, a lot of people say, oh, I can have a coffee with dinner and it doesn't impact me. But in reality, it may be impacting brain waves on a deeper level. I wouldn't be surprised if that's another sign of somebody who's sleep deprived. If you can have a <laughs> cup of coffee right before bed and still go to sleep, <laughs> you're tired. So true. So true. Um, exercise is one where it, it really depends on the person. So some people can exercise before bedtime. It's kind of a myth that, you know, we say, oh, don't exercise before bedtime. But I think it depends on the person. Uh, you just kind of kind of try that out yourself as to whether or not. Oh, yeah. It totally kills my sleep, especially if it's like super high intensity. I am wound up all night. Oh, long. okay. Yeah. So for you, you wouldn't want to exercise right before bedtime. Um, yeah. Those would be three that I'm thinking of. Well, so what about the circadian rhythm stuff? You know, the bright lights at night, you know, maybe eating late, you know, eating meals late, things like that. What about those? Yes. The... Uh, as far as the bright light at night, in general, that's not a good idea. You know, you want to kind of dim the lights an hour or two before bedtime. You want to put away the electronic devices. Um, there is kind of a mix in how sleep scientists, some, the, it depends on how you interpret the data, I guess. Because um, some sleep scientists don't think that electronic devices before bedtime is is that big of a problem, especially if it's like TV, you know, maybe relaxing for you. The It's not as long as it's far away from your eyes, you know, the light isn't too big of an issue. Um, it's when you start getting really bright light close to your eyes. So if you're on an iPad or a tablet, 
that's where it could become an issue. Or some sort of reader. Mm, yeah. Electronic mm -hmm. reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting lots of light throughout the day. So getting outside, especially in the morning hours, is going to help combat electronic device use at night. So they find that the more you're outside, the more you're in brighter light during the day, the less impact these devices are going to have on you at night. Oh, great. And so for me, I, I always recommend one of my premier tips is to get outside especially during the morning hours, you know, before noon for at least 20 minutes. And that's going to help set your circadian rhythms for the day. It's going to just signal to your body that it's, it's awake time. Uh, so that's definitely a tip. And for me, I'm in a basement right now. I have one little window in my office and I actually measured my light levels and I was at 100 lux. And I went outside on a cloudy day and it was at 14,000 lux outside. Holy cow. So 140 times brighter. I think I, I may be an anomaly here in the basement. It's not the greatest lighting levels. But um, that's just to show you that outside natural light is that much brighter, right. which can then. So even if it's cloudy, yes, go outside. Absolutely. All right. Well, great. Well, so what about like sleeping aids? I mean, I could talk about all the crap I take, um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, there's, there's like taking melatonin and valerian root and things like that. And then there's also like prescription stuff. I can't even think of the names, but um, I'm sure you'll be familiar with it. Ambien. Yeah. Yeah. So actually I did quite a bit of research into supplements um, as I'm working with this company developed this sleep gummy. Yeah. So I've done a lot of research into these different supplements. So we can talk about supplements first, then we can get to the, to the over the, or the uh, prescription sleep okay. aids. But uh, what I found in my research is that melatonin is typically useful if you are, if you want to shift your circadian rhythm to an earlier time. So if you are more of a night owl, and you want to kind of be more on a normal schedule, melatonin will help facilitate that. And it's typically even 0.5 milligrams. So 0.5 milligrams is basically the equivalent of a physiological dose. So how much you would pr be producing in your body. Um, so okay. point, even just 0.5 milligrams can help shift your circadian rhythms to an earlier time. Um, and you wouldn't want to go beyond like three milligrams because uh, it's just a ton of melatonin that's in your system. So even just three milligrams um, can be effective. Okay. But I think we have to ask the question, like, why are you taking it? Are you having issues falling asleep? And in general, what we find is that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is more effective than melatonin and is more effective than prescription sleep aids. So, um, you know, you got to watch out for that. And also you have to watch out for the content. You have to get a very reliable brand because there is a lot of junk out there. And there was one study that showed 80% of what's out there as far as melatonin supplements are not within 20% of what the label is telling you. So uh. there's contaminants, there's either more or less melatonin than what it's saying. So you have to try and get a reliable brand. Right. 
I looked into other supplements as well. So magnesium is one that may be useful for people because there's a huge uh, population that doesn't get enough magnesium within their diet and magnesium helps relax you. It, it helps improve sleep quality. It reduces muscle cramping, et cetera. So that may be something for people to look into, especially if you're magnesium deficient, yeah. that's going to help with sleep. Um, I looked at chamomile. I looked at valerian root in the research and there just wasn't enough evidence for me to kind of recommend that. Um, although there may be some individual variability, so it may work well for certain people versus other people. But on a whole, in my research, I found that valerian root and chamomile wasn't, um, wasn't very good. Another one could be uh, tart cherry juice. So tart cherry juice, oh, yeah. there's been a few studies actually in people with insomnia and they found that it helped them get 60 more minutes of sleep per wow. night, which is huge. I want that. <laughs> so tart cherry juice is another one. So you could do a tart cherry juice concentrate, one ounce, um, about an hour before bedtime. And then actually th some of these protocols that I'm seeing are in the morning as well. So twice a day one ounce tart cherry juice concentrate in the morning and then also about an hour before bedtime. Really? You take it in the morning and it doesn't make you sleepy in the day, but it helps no. you sleep at night. No, there was, um, I actually looked at that in one of these studies and there was a slight elevation uh, in the morning, but it wasn't really statistically significant from if you were to not take it. Huh. Uh, so yeah, that was, awesome. that was something interesting. So that's something people can check out. And then if you are on prescription medications, I know pres prescription sleep aids in, in certain cases, you know, someone's been dealing with insomnia for a long period of time. They just want to get help. So in certain cases, it, it may be good on a short-term basis, but you don't want to be on those for, for two. And I'm, of course, I'm a scientist. I'm not a medical doctor. So yeah. just keep that in mind. But um, yeah, there are, better, there are better ways to help with insomnia. Like I mentioned, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And there's programs online that you can access. There are sleep professionals doing this type of counseling you know, so that would be something you would want to at least try um, before you are on the sleeping pills for long periods of time. Right. Or, or if you're on them and you'd like to get off, then some maybe some skills to learn mm -hmm. that could be helpful. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Well, so the last thing that I think people do sometimes is they nap, right? You know, I didn't get a good night's sleep, so I'll take a nap. Are naps harming people, uh, prolonging their ability to not get good sleep, or are they just good? I'm, I'm a huge nap fan. I think naps are great, uh, especially for me. If So I have small kids who wake me up during the middle of the night sometimes. Right. Sometimes it takes me a while to fall back to sleep. So I have kind of this routine. Um, so if I'm having issues falling, let's say I get woken up, during the middle of the night, um, I try some breathing techniques first to help me fall asleep. So I'll do the four, seven, eight breathing technique where you breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven, breathe out for eight, 
And I repeat that four times. And then I'll move to a cognitive technique. So the cognitive shuffle. So I'll think of a word such as bedtime. Imagine all the objects I can that start with B. So ball, baby, bus, banana. Move on to the next letter E, eagle, egg, ear. And hopefully by the time you get to the end of the word, you will be sound asleep. However, there's been times where I've done the breathing techniques, I've done the cognitive technique, and I'm still not getting to sleep. And so I get up out of bed and only re- do a relaxing activity in low light. So I'll read a book and only return back to bed when I'm sleepy. Yeah. And there will be times where I just can't go to sleep. So I may wake up at four in the morning and not be able to get back to sleep. So what right. I do is I schedule a nap the following day and just a short 20 minute nap. I'll set my alarm for about 30 minutes. Okay. So you don't just sleep until you wake up. You set an alarm. Yes. I set an alarm and I try and wake up before that alarms because then you're, you're more alert. Uh, and so the timing of that nap, we want to make it between like around 1 p.m. to around 4 p.m. And that way we're not too close to bedtime. So if you were to nap, a nap is kind of like uh, eating a snack before dinner. You know, you don't want to make it too close to your bedtime because then it or will too make big, it, right? Yes, or too long because then it'll make it harder to fall asleep. Um, now, you could schedule a longer nap. I'm not opposed to that, um, but you want to keep it 90 minutes or less or so because any more than that, and you're decreasing your drive for sleep at night. So you want to. Ideally, you want to maybe set your alarm for two hours if you want to take that longer nap and try and wake up before your alarm. So if you wake up, you get up right away and uh, you'll just be feeling more alert from that. But I think, yeah, naps can be useful if you're getting poor nighttime sleep. And I think it's a way to ease some of that anxiety. You know, for me, my kids will wake me up every so often. It's just kind of a part of life. And if that happens and I can't get back to sleep, I'll just schedule in a nap the next day. Great. Well, what else should people do? Let's move on to the what should people do in order to get quality sleep? Uh, Another thing that we haven't talked about is having a good pre-sleep routine. Okay. So yeah, you want to take some time to unwind before bedtime. It's not like you can just go, 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 and then expect to just fall asleep right away. Um, So that would be another useful thing for people to check out and potentially adding in a warm bath or shower within this hour before bedtime has been shown to help you fall asleep quicker, Uh, doing some stretching, doing some uh, reading. um, Oh, do adding in a to-do list. Actually, there's been some research on they did a comparison between those who wrote a to-do list and those who just journaled about their day. And there was something specific about the to-do list that really helped people fall asleep quicker and led to better sleep quality. And they think it had to do with kind of offloading those thoughts from your mind, putting them on paper and just kind of getting some of those thoughts out of your mind. So that's, that's a good strategy to add into your pre-sleep routine. Sure. That makes sense. Well, so what else, like uh, um, things that I've heard over the years, uh, you'd already said having a regular schedule, not having a different one on the weekends or 
that sort of thing, the better not to have the naps too long or too close to bedtime. It, regarding c- circadian rhythm, is eating a trigger for circadian rhythm? I mean, can you like have good light hygiene, but eat late and have that mess up? your circadian rhythm? That's a good question. There was there was some research on um, there was some research in athletes. I forget the team or the type of sport it was, but um, they were looking at eating windows during the day. They were looking, they were comparing athletes who stopped eating at 6 p.m. versus those yeah. who had a snack right before. And they found that actually the snack, those people had better sleep quality with the the light snack, you know, before an hour or so before bedtime. Of course, we don't um, we don't want to make that a big large meal because then you're digesting, trying to digest while you're sleeping. But um, they thought that that might have had to do with uh, glucose regulation and not having the athlete necessarily crash. During the middle of the night, there were ways to keep their blood sugar stable. So by having that little snack before bedtime, it showed uh, better sleep quality. And I think that was kind of a small study. So I think there's a lot more to be learned here. Um, There may be certain phenotypes that do better if you don't eat before bedtime. So maybe people should try it, you know, this way and that way and see what seems better. Yes. And there, you know, time-restricted eating, limiting that uh, or extending that fasting window is is a hot topic these days. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to throw that information out there because for some people, it may actually be better to have a snack right before bedtime, especially depending right. on your training load as well. Yeah, good point. Okay. Uh, and so I'd also heard that it's better to sleep in you know totally dark environments. So whether it's a, like eye shades or, you know, blackening out the curtains uh, in a cool room, um, maybe, I mean, white noise, uh, that sort of thing. I mean, is there any of that kind of stuff that people should do? That's a good point. Yes. A good sleep environment is really important. And I think for people, it's a way to create better sleep moving forward. So it's kind of a one-time change that you have to do to your environment. So you can add blackout blinds, blackout shades, um, wear an eye mask, those kind of things that can create better sleep quality down the road. Uh, so I, I actually, it took me a while to realize how important the sleep environment was. It wasn't until it was about a year ago or so where I slept in a cabin cabin in the woods in British Columbia. And uh, it was dark. It was quiet. It was cold. And my whole family just slept amazing there. And it, it wasn't until that experience that I realized how poor my sleep environment actually was. And so I added blackout shade that I pulled down blackout curtains as well. So like kind of double protection there Um, started wearing earplugs and it, it can really make a difference. So I think people should watch out for that. Um, get all, well, obviously get all your electronic devices out of the room. So for me, I keep my phone downstairs. I may, on certain days when I need an alarm, I might, I, we have a bathroom kind of connected. So I'll put it in there. You don't want to have your phone right, right beside your bed because it can disturb you during the night. And also just 
phone is kind of associated with being awake, being alert, you know, excitement, et cetera. So you don't want that near your bed at all. Um, Oh my God. The worst thing is to be laying there, not being able to fall back asleep and you know, the phone is right there and I wonder what's going on. (laughs) And that's the end. There's no going back to sleep now. Yes. Uh, Okay. So a couple of other things, Uh, nose breathing is a thing lately. And, um, and I actually have started doing it. I'm not even sure how I learned how to do it, but I now find that I sleep with my mouth closed and I, when I wake up, my mouth is closed and I'm breathing through my nose. Uh, Is that, is there any studies about that? There, there has been some work. Um, I'm trying to think Stephen, Stephen Park, uh, Dr. Stephen Park, he has a podcast related to sleeping better. And he talks about that a lot where you're getting more oxygen as it's coming through your nasal passages. Um, you know, so there is a little bit of evidence behind the preferential, um, benefit of nose breathing versus mouth breathing. Yeah. Well, and maybe it's harder to snore when you're breathing through your nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not too, I haven't gone too deep into that research at all, but, but it is something maybe people could try. Yeah. And then the last thing, so, you know, I'm a Colorado person and so we live at altitude and it's also very dry, the air. Has there been anything about, I mean, if you go high enough, I I know from my old mountaineering days that if your body is not adapted to the altitude, then that will bother you and you'll, you'll wake up. I think it's called chain Stokes breathing Mm -hmm. or something and you'll get, you'll wake up gasping for air. But for people who I guess live at a certain altitude all the time, they would be used to it. But is there any thing about altitude that's in the research? I think there was one study at some point looking at Colorado, like maybe Denver versus Hawaii. And um, the people in Hawaii, well, (laughs) they have the island, they have the ocean, there's a lot of other factors (laughs) there, but they did sleep better than those at higher altitude. So there, there is some truth behind that. And when we get to higher altitude, the uh, we have more likelihood for sleep disordered breathing, so stopping breathing during the night, um, and that's uh-huh. kind of the mechanism. Is is uh, there's less kind of muscle control, and so your tissues in your throat tend to be more floppy and can lead to more sleep disordered breathing. So there is a little little bit of truth to that. Um, but I'm sure there's a ton of people in Denver who get great quality sleep oh. as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so clearly, if people are having physical problems that are affecting their sleep, then they should get that taken care of. They should go find some help and, and get that, you know, like sleep apnea mm-hmm. uh, as an example. I mean, if somebody is, if their partner is telling them that they snore every night, then they, they really need to look into that and, and try to get that resolved. Cause if they're waking up a hundred times a night, they're, they're not getting good no, sleep. No, no. Um, actually maybe we can put a link in the show notes, but I helped develop the athlete sleep screening questionnaire and it's, it's available uh. online. So you can go to center 
and you can, we'll put that, maybe you can put that in the show notes and people can really gauge, you know, do I have a sleep problem or not? And um, yeah, That'd it's a good way to do a quick check, you know, if you have sleep problems, but for sure, if you're stopping breathing during the middle of the night, if you're snoring a lot, if you're having insomnia where it's taking you more than 30 minutes to fall asleep and this is happening three days a week for three months, you definitely want to get it checked out from a sleep professional. And uh, it's not worth it to kind of try and solve it on your own or not to do anything. Um, yeah, definitely get it checked out. Well, and it just seems so fundamental to health and longevity and to athletic performance and well to everything that you've just got to figure it out and so nobody should i'm assuming you'll agree that nobody should think that some people just don't sleep good and they just have to live with it or that some people just don't need much sleep and i'm probably one of those and you know five cups of coffee what's wrong with that or the idea that i hate having to i hate trying to fall asleep so i stay up until i basically pass out, <laughs> you know, or I take medication and so I can just pass out and not have to, you know, count sheep, which I hate to do. Uh, so what do you think? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of health implications for having poor sleep. And if we just look at one example that occurs every year, we're hoping to eliminate it, but that daylight saving time where we lose an hour of uh, sleep you know, we do see a 25% increase in heart attacks on the Monday after daylight saving time. No way. Yes. So there's more, wow. there's more accidents, there's more strokes, there's more, you know, mental health problems occurring in that week after daylight saving time. And that's just an hour of sleep loss. Also combined with circadian misalignment a little bit. But I mean, I think that's an example right there about how important sleep can be. And you really do want to get it checked out for better health and better longevity. Well, I've gotten to the end of my list and you've done a great <laughs> job in informing me and our listeners about this subject. Is there anything else that you would want to add? And and then we'll also want to let people know how they could find you and and where you would send people if they had more questions and wanted to know more about sleep health. Oh man, I think we, we covered it all. I'm trying to think if there's anything else uh, I would want to add here. I mean, we covered a lot of those tips that, that people can do getting lots of light in the morning, having a pre-sleep routine, adding in a nap, some of those techniques to yeah. help you fall asleep. Um, and then also getting help. Uh, if you do have a sleep problem, I think, I think we, yeah. we covered a lot here. Uh, I don't really have too much to add. Great. Um, people can get in touch via, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at sleep for sport, the number four. And then I'm also working on a website, sleepwelltowen.com. Um, yeah. Cool. So people can check me all out right. there. Well, I'll get all that, all those links I'll get from you and we'll put those in the show notes and then people can go there to find it. Um, if they can't remember what you just said, well, Dr. Bender, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking some time. I'm going to sleep better tonight. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yes, sleep well. Thanks. All righty, bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion about sleep with Dr. Amy Bender, Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra. 
And thanks to Dr. Bender for taking some time out of her schedule to up our sleep game. You can find more information about Dr. Bender and how to reach her in the show notes. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for a newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.